Before Shopify, were you wondering, where my sales at? Now you're selling with Shopify, the global commerce platform supercharging your selling. You have no problem selling online, in person, on social media, and beyond. Gary, easy on the cha-ching. <clears throat> oh, sorry, but my Shopify sales are through the roof. Start selling with Shopify today and discover how millions of businesses around the world use Shopify to ignite their selling. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash listen. Shopify.com slash listen. The Merrifield girls had a tough upbringing. No father and an alcoholic mother. Almost every trusted adult had some sort of drug addiction. The girls were suddenly ripped apart after a sexual abuse allegation. This affected 13-year-old Deanna the hardest. Deanna was last seen getting into a car with two unknown men in the early hours of the morning, never to be seen by her beloved siblings again. Sadly, there is very little information about this case. What you will hear today is only due to the Merrifield siblings' tireless work spreading Deanna's story on social media. This case did not get any investigation to speak of, and there was no extensive media campaign at the time or since. No one was interested in providing the resources necessary to provide answers to a grieving family. This is why it was important to us here at Stolen Lives to start this podcast, to be the voice for those without one. This is Deanna's story. Deanna Michelle Merrifield was born on February 2nd, 1977, to mother Laurel Merrifield. She had a fraternal twin sister, Rebecca, Unfortunately, Laurel either did not know who the girl's father was or chose not to tell them. Rebecca would not find out the identity of her father until many years after Deanna vanished. This would be a similar situation for Deanna's older sister Amy, who was three years her senior, and Melissa, who was two years her junior. But both Amy and Melissa would never learn their father's identities. All is known is that all the children, except for Deanna and Rebecca, of course, they would have different fathers. The family lived in Killeen, Texas. Killeen is located 55 miles north of Austin and is close to Fort Hood, hence it being a military base now. In 1990, though, Killeen had a population of around 60,000 and had a lot of questionable activity going on. At the time, Colleen had a high crime rate. This may have been due to Colleen being located not far from a major highway. Now, Colleen has grown massive since the 1990s, with a population now mainly being soldiers and their families. But in 1990, with several serial killers committing their crimes in neighbouring cities, it was not somewhere you would choose to raise your family. Life was not easy for the Merrifield girls. Their mother was a chronic alcoholic. There actually seemed to be a lot of drug and alcohol problems with most of the adults in their lives. But things seemed to get a lot worse in 1989, 
when Laura was hospitalised, probably due to complications from her drinking. During this time, the girls were left in the care of their stepfather, Roy. This would be the first time Deanna, who was 12 years old at the time, she ran away with her twin sister. They would go to their grandmother Ethel's home and tell her they were being sexually abused by their stepfather. Now, originally, the twins and their older sister Amy would officially file reports of abuse allegations against Roy. However, there was not enough proof to charge him in Amy's case, and Rebecca would recant her statement. Roy would be later charged with indecency with a child. It is the belief of her younger sister, Melissa, that these charges were in relation to the molestation of Deanna. For these charges, Roy would receive 10 years probation and be placed on the sex offender register. Deanna would run away soon after to her boyfriend Skipper's home, only for Skipper to contact her grandmother to come and get her. The fear this girl must have been feeling in her own home, it's really heartbreaking. After their mother returned from her hospital stay, she was given the option by Child Protective Services. It was either her husband or her children. Look, honestly, I'm beyond shocked doing these podcasts at what some parents are capable of, so I'm not surprised at what happens next. But Laurel chose for Roy to remain at the property over her children. Because of this, the children would then be scattered amongst family members in the area, with the twins staying with their uncle James, and Amy and Melissa living with their grandmother Ethel. Sometime by the summer of 1990, Melissa had returned to live with her mother and Roy. I'm not sure how this was approved when the others were not able to, and consider Roy was now on the sex offender register. Maybe it was because Melissa did not make an accusation, but that really doesn't make any sense and shouldn't make a difference. Her mother was essentially putting her daughter in danger by allowing her to return. Thankfully, nothing happened and Melissa was not aware of the sexual abuse allegations until decades later. For reasons Deanna's siblings are not sure of now, Deanna decided to spend the summer of 1990 with her grandmother Ethel at Alamo Avenue, possibly because 11-year-old Melissa had returned home, and 16-year-old Amy was spending the summer with an aunt in Virginia leaving Ethel alone in the house. There would have probably been more space and more freedom at her grandmother's home than at her uncle's trailer. Regardless, Deanna had just finished the seventh grade at Manor Middle School and was due to enter the eighth grade at Fairway School in the fall. Deanna loved music, especially Def Leppard, White Snake, and Ozzy Osbourne. Her family lovingly nicknamed her Prissy, Nana and Danger Mouse. She was streetwise and rebellious and was going through a difficult stage that summer, which is understandable given what she had gone through in her short life so far. July 21st, 1990. 13-year-old Deanna and Ethel had spent the night watching movies. 
At about 1.30am, Ethel kissed her granddaughter goodnight and went to bed. Deanna used the opportunity to sneak out of the house, something she did often. The next time anyone saw Deanna was 3.30am, when she knocked on her twin sister Rebecca's window at her uncle's home at the Oak Springs Trailer Park in the 500 block of Dimple Street in Killeen. The two talked for a short while. What happens next is according to Rebecca. This is not to say she's lying or to discount her. It's just to say there was no other witnesses as to what was said or where Deanna went after she left. The conversation was apparently unremarkable at first, but then Rebecca saw a car outside the trailer she did not recognise. Rebecca would later describe the car as either being brown or bronze, with two men inside that were either Caucasian or Hispanic. It is reported as both. Deanna would tell Rebecca that these were either her friends or her older sister's friends. Again, it is reported as both. Although it must be noted that Amy would later state she did not know anyone who admitted to being with Deanna that night or having a card that matched the description. Regardless, Deanna would tell Rebecca that she was with friends and they were going for a drive and she was out to make money. At no point, though, Deanna would say anything about running away or going away for any period of time. This conversation was cut short, though, as their uncle James had woken up and he told Deanna to go home. This would be the last time Rebecca would see her twin sister. Before we move on, though, something that does bother me about this. How was this ride arranged? 1990 was a time before cell phones and the internet. Yes, Deanna may have used the landline, but this would have been risky as her grandmother may have overheard it. There is a chance it was arranged earlier in the day, and these were people Deanna had befriended. Rebecca had said the two had grown apart over the summer of 1990 and Deanna had started hanging out with a rougher crowd. But for this ride to have been arranged earlier, how would Deanna know when or if her grandmother would have went to bed? The other option would be that Deanna snuck out and was planning on walking the two and a half miles to her uncle's trailer. This was something she had done before, so it isn't out of the realms of possibility. And then on the walk there, the car drove past, spotted Deanna, and picked her up. In this scenario, it is possible that Deanna did not even know the men prior to this. Deanna was known to be a free spirit, but also rebellious. In my opinion, this is very possible and the most likely scenario here. The following morning, July 22nd, 1990, Ethel awoke early, but since it was summer and her granddaughter was up late the night before, she decided to let her sleep in for as long as possible. At 11am, she went in to wake her for lunch, but Deanna's bed had not been slept in and there was no sign of the teen. All her belongings were left behind. There was nothing missing. Ethel would contact Deanna's mother, Laurel, and all of Deanna's friends. No one had seen her. It was only when she contacted James, 
Would he tell Ethel that Deanna had been there in the early morning hours? And although Ethel was obviously concerned, Deanna had run away before and had friends cover for her. She thought her granddaughter would return in a day or two. But when she didn't return and no one had heard from her, Ethel picked up some photos from Laurel's home and officially filed a missing persons report with the Colleen Police Department. Unfortunately, as far as investigations go, there doesn't appear to be any. Laurel wouldn't assist the police. They would be later quoted as saying that in their opinion, Laurel saw her daughter as a problem, and now the problem was no longer there. Ethel, crippled by her grief and guilt, did all she could, but she believed Deanna ran away too, which is what police wrote the case off as. The case was all but closed, without as much as a search. In the early 2000s, Amy, Rebecca and Melissa were now at an age where they were looking for more answers as to what happened to their sister. Their mother never took part in the investigation, what there was anyway. The sisters would later discover the case was officially closed and removed from the missing persons register on Deanna's 18th birthday. This was never supposed to happen and the officers involved, they could not say why it did. The sisters pushed for the case to be reopened and when it was, there was no photo attached to the case file. It actually seems from my research, the case file was lost. The courage and tenacity of the Merrifield sisters, they have achieved so much since then. Not only have they got Deanna back on the missing persons register, but they have uncovered much more than the police investigation ever did. Their efforts are part of the reason why we wanted to bring this case to you today. As with most missing persons cases, there have been alleged sightings of Deanna over the decades. This has given the family hope that Deanna is still alive and that one day she will come home. In 1992, Rebecca received a collect call from a woman who said her name was Deanna. But by the time she accepted the charges, the caller had hung up. The family would hire a private investigator in 2003 who traced the call back to a payphone in Horse Cove or Horse Cave or Cave City. It's been reported as all three. The only constant was it was in the state of Kentucky. Unfortunately, the caller has never been identified. In 1995, police in Hearst, Texas, stopped a woman at a traffic stop who gave her identity as Deanna Merrifield, with the birth date of February 2nd, 1977, same as the missing girl. The family would not discover this until the private investigator started working on the case in 2003, meaning many possible leads and the chance to find Deanna, it was all but lost. Now in saying that, it may not have been Deanna after all, it could have been a red herring, someone using Deanna's identity. She was young enough going missing where she didn't need any identity of her own, and 1990s America would have been less stringent in gaining new identity. 
It would have been relatively easy for someone to do that, and this wouldn't be the first time this happened in a missing persons case. In 1999, 20-year-old Brooke Henson went missing after a fight with her boyfriend. She went for a walk and never returned. Her parents deemed her a runaway and never actually started searching for her for three weeks. Because of this, the case was hampered right from the beginning and never really started. There are so many parallels with these two cases, sadly. But Brooke's case went cold. That was until 2006, when Brooke's name, date of birth and social security number was used to register for classes at Columbia University in New York. Unfortunately, it wasn't Brooke, though. It was Esther Reed, who was a con artist. She had a history of doing this, stealing identities and enrolling in academic institutions under other people's names. She was asked to provide a DNA sample to prove she wasn't Brooke, but instead Reed went on the run and became a fugitive. She would ultimately be captured and sentenced to 51 months in prison. So someone may have crossed paths with Deanna and knew she was no longer alive. Someone who was in trouble themselves and knew that Deanna's name would not come up in a police search with an outstanding warrant. They may have used her identity to avoid arrest. Not too far-fetched in my opinion. Or it could have been Deanna. She somehow knew her missing person's file was closed and she wouldn't come up in a police search as a missing person. And besides, she was an adult now and they couldn't force her to go back home or to contact her family. This is very possible as well. The last trace of possibly Deanna came sometime between 2000 and 2002, when Deanna allegedly went to visit her relative from out of state. Deanna had changed somewhat in the last decade. She now had several tattoos, including her surname Maryfield, and an unspecified date on her neck, a yellow rose and the words Texas born on her back, and a cross with lines on her ankle. Deanna begged this relative not to tell anyone but this relative would contact Deanna's mother, Laurel, soon after telling her she had seen her daughter. To this day, many agencies classify Deanna as a runaway, and while these reported sightings do suggest this, many years have passed without any confirmed sightings, which suggests to me she is no longer alive. But while we are on this line of thinking, let's discuss theories in the case. There really are only two theories in this case, with one taking two turns. Firstly, Brianna met with foul play on the night she was last seen. That company she was last seen with, two unknown men in an unknown car in the very early morning hours. You can't get any redder of a red flag there. And there isn't any confirmed reliable evidence that she was alive after this point. People call family of missing persons all the time, pretending to be them, and we have already potentially debunked the traffic stop sighting with the police. And the relative sighting, that relative may have made up the story. Maybe they saw how poorly the grandmother was taking the disappearance, 
how heartbroken her siblings were, and it was a misguided attempt to help. I mean, how dependable was this claim, really? Was there actual further proof? I would actually love to talk to Deanna's siblings about what they thought of this claim. Unfortunately, Deanna being murdered soon after leaving her uncles is a very probable outcome here. The second theory discussed on True Crime and Unsolved Mysteries forums is that Deanna did run away and that she is still alive today. This seems the least likely option, unfortunately. Few people can go missing for this long and still be alive, particularly without the means and resources and experience, which at 13 years old, Deanna did not have at the time. In addition, the private investigator her siblings hired, he ran her social security number and it was never used. I think that if this was the outcome, that she did run away that night, as she said to her sister, she wanted to make some money. Was she being groomed by these guys? Rebecca has said that she did not know the friends that her sister was hanging out with that summer, only they were bad news. Did Deanna get tied up into illegal activities, possible sex work and drugs? Given it has been 31 years this year, she would now be in her 40s. She wouldn't need to hide out from the police anymore. No one could make her come home. I think that unlike a lot of runaway cases involving girls around Deanna's age, I think in this case she could be still alive, at least as late as 2002 anyway. But without any solid, credible evidence of this, and because there was no one to push the investigation at the time, unfortunately, her sisters may never get the answers they are searching for. If Deanna was indeed murdered, who was responsible? Deanna was running with a bad crowd and did tell her sister that night she was out to make some money. Was she trafficked? Or unfortunately, did she become the victim of one of the many serial killers in the area at the time? In the Vanished podcast episode of the 1993 disappearance of 14-year-old Danielle Pitcher and her mother Dorothy in Arizona, Marissa mentioned that the pair may become victim of a criminal family in the area and that maybe Deanna was also a possible victim of theirs. We won't go too much into this case today because this is Deanna's episode and she has no way received the coverage she deserves. However, if this is a case you would like us to cover in the future, please let us know on social media. It is a very rabbit-hole-filled, fascinating case. But Danielle and Dorothy went missing after they went for a walk to a store and never returned. Actually, there seems to be a trend in this episode of people going for a walk and never returning. But in 2002, police received a tip that one of Pitch's neighbours, Danny Morris, had killed the mother and daughter. Allegedly, Morris had picked up Danielle and Dorothy on a highway and took them to a property owned by his family. It would be here that Dorothy would be killed, and 14-year-old Danielle would be kept as a sex slave. Now this is where Deanna's case ties in. 
The tipster also stated that a couple of years before Danielle, Morris picked up another young girl, this time a runaway from Texas, and that Morris took this runaway back to his property, where she was held captive for a while. This tipster would actually claim he personally saw this girl at Morris's property, that she would be aged in her mid-teens with shoulder-length blonde hair, that she was being kept as a sex slave for the whole family, which included Morris's father, who was also a sex offender. A neighbour of the Morrises in the early 1990s would be interviewed, and I've also seen her reported as being Deanna's aunt, but I don't know how accurate that is. Regardless, she was interviewed and she remembered seeing a slim blonde girl named Dina living at Morris's property, and that Morris's mother was being beaten and abused herself while trying to help the girl. Now, was this Deanna? It's possible. The location is right and the description is right as well. However, the description also matches that of Danielle Pitcher, were the eyewitnesses incorrect with their time frame? And was the girl seen actually Danielle and not Deanna? Or was it another girl altogether? Or was it a fabrication? We will never know, but it is a theory that is out there. Another suspect mentioned in True Crime and Unsolved Mysteries forums is serial killer Kenneth McDuff. Macduff was given the nickname the Broomstick Killer by the media because after raping his victims, he would strangle them with a broomstick. Macduff would be sentenced to life for his role in the 1966 murder of Robert Brand. However, due to the suspension of the death penalty in 1972 and overcrowding in Texan prisons, he was given parole in 1989. You heard right. He went from the death penalty to being free in 15 years. Macduff and another serial killer, Alva Hank Worley, would go on to rape and murder as many as 14 women throughout Texas in the early 1990s. And honestly, reading through their reign of terror, I do believe that estimate is most likely much higher. On November 18th, 1998, Macduff was put to death by lethal injection. Could it have been Macduff and his cohort Worley in that car the night Deanna went missing? Were they responsible for Deanna's disappearance? Their names are mentioned solely based on location. I couldn't find a description of the car or cars they were driving during this period. And Macduff, he didn't have a victim type. He murdered sex workers, mothers, professionals. He was a killer that saw an opportunity and he took it, which made him very terrifying. He just saw someone he wanted to take and he would take them. Whether he did murder Deanna, I don't know. It seems like a stretch to me. For what it's worth, Deanna's stepfather did take a polygraph in the mid-2000s and he passed although I don't know how the answers could be affected with the passage of time and due to potential drug and alcohol abuse, knowing how that damages memory. Laurel Merrifield died in 2002 from complications from cirrhosis of the liver due to many decades of alcohol abuse. 
Deanna's grandmother, Ethel Merrifield, has apparently never forgiven herself for what happened, that Deanna went missing on her watch. Honestly, though, there wasn't anything more she could have done that night. From what I have read on Web Sleuths by Deanna's sisters, Ethel was one of the few steadfast, reliable, clean adults in the children's lives. She was a godsend for them. Deanna's sisters have never given up on finding their sister. I strongly encourage you to have a read-through of the first few threads on Web Sleuths. It is both heartbreaking reading her sister's comments and inspiring for what they have achieved in their search for Deanna. Deanna Merrifield was 13 years old at the time of her disappearance. She was 5 foot 4 and about 115 pounds. Deanna had shoulder-length blonde or strawberry blonde hair with blue eyes. Many agencies use the tattoos viewed by a relative on the alleged visit by Deanna, but we believe this visit may have not actually happened. If Deanna is still alive today, she would be 44 years old. If you have any information regarding the disappearance of Deanna Merrifield, please contact the Colleen Police Department on 254 501 8891. If you have your own thoughts on the case we discussed today, or any case we talk about on Stolen Lives, please search Stolen Lives on Facebook. Like the page so you don't miss an episode, and join the discussion group to share your ideas and theories. You can also talk to us on Twitter, search lives underscore stolen, or on Instagram, Stolen Lives Podcast. If you like what you've heard today, please share on your social media of choice and rate, review and subscribe on iTunes or your favourite podcast app. We are now on Patreon, so if you are able, please become a patron for as little as $2 a month for early release, ad-free episodes and exclusive content. This week's episode was researched and written by Oniko. Hosting and production is by me, Ali. Music is by Mayu. Mayu.